Good morning. I find it difficult at times to walk and chew gum. So holding a microphone and preaching, which is a, another symptom of our equipment being moved, we'll, uh, we'll see if I can do both of those things at the same time. And we'll find out together this morning. <laughs> if you got your Bible with you, go with me to the book of Genesis, chapter 8. If you don't have a Bible with you, there are Bibles that are in the chair racks there in front of you. Feel free to grab one, and if you're not familiar with where to find things in the Bible, uh, Genesis is the very first book of the Old Testament, the very beginning. So if you start there and work your way forward towards, uh, towards Genesis chapter 8, you should be able to find that relatively easily so that you can follow along with us. Uh, before we dive into that this morning, I have a word of clarification and then a word of apology to you that I want to, to share with you before we dive into the stuff that we want to talk about today. Uh, the word of clarification is this. Uh, over the por- course of the past two sermons, I have used a movie as an illustration of something. And somebody brought to my attention this week that that movie has uh, some significant objectionable content in it. Uh, So you may be asking, well, you watched the movie. How did you not know that? And I want to let you know now that 99% of the movies that I watch, I watch through a filtering service (laughs) where I click a couple of buttons and all the bad stuff is gone. And I don't even know that the bad stuff is there sometimes. And then I talk about it and people are like, oh, okay. Uh, So I want to give you that clarification And then I want to apologize to you, because even if that's the case for me, uh, I don't want families uh, saying, hey, you know, our pastor mentioned for family movie night, and then, oh my goodness. Uh, It's funny, but it's not funny, because I don't want to ever be the means of, of, of leading us into taking in content that we really shouldn't be taking in. And so... Uh, I want to apologize if you had an accident moment with, with that movie. I will try to be more careful in what I, what I mention and letting you know that uh, uh, that's the way I watch most movies. <laughs> um, and, so, and so I wanted to give you that apology in case that's created any questions in your mind. I'm thankful for the person that brought that to my attention. Uh, I believe that we should be Uh, engaging with cultural artifacts. I think that uh, one of the things that we want to do is know what our culture's stories are, what captures the imaginations of the imagination of the people in our culture, because the Bible tells us a different story. Uh, It tells us the real story, the better story, the right story. And we always want to be contrasting the fake story that we hear with the true story that we need. And uh, so we'll try to do that. I will try to do that with more care. And thank you for being uh, gracious with me about that in your minds, if you've been wondering. And thank you for the person that brought that to my attention. Okay, that's over. Genesis chapter 8 is where we are going to be spending our time. Genesis 8 and chapter 9 today. I want us to, as I've said before, I want us to try to put ourselves in the shoes of Noah and his family. What was it like 
to have the experiences that they experienced. And as we move into this last section of the story from Noah's life, I want us to think about what it would be like as you step off the ark, which remember is not a cruise ship. It doesn't have a track on the top so that you can get your Fitbit steps in. It doesn't have a, a treadmill in it. You've been cooped up in this thing with very little natural light probably coming in. You've been on this thing for probably around a year, and you're finally stepping off of this thing into the brightness of the sunlight. And there's probably, it was probably an eerie feeling that they felt as they take, get their first glimpses of a very different world than the one that they had inhabited a year ago. The, the closest thing I, can, I think I can come to in trying to get us to feel what maybe they may have been feeling when they stepped out of the ark is what it feels like after a hurricane. We've just had one a week and a half ago, and this was a rather small one, but you go through this, this, this situation where the, the weather is attacking you. And when the weather attack is over, you, you know, within a day's time usually, the sun is out and the after hurricane weather is gorgeous. I mean, we've had like a week of fantastic after hurricane weather. Now, we don't have the devastation that happened to our particular communities after a hurricane, but we have had it before. And one of the eerie things is walking out after the weather has just attacked you, and now the weather is a blessing, and you see the contrast between the sun that's shining in the sky and the devastation that's all around you. That's the closest analogy that I can think of for what it may have been like for them to step off the ark and into the sun. What would you do first? Would you set up camp, get, the, get your little rolly bag off the ark and, and start unpacking your luggage? Would you go running around <laughs> because you haven't been able to run around? Are you going to explore to see, well, where exactly have we landed? I mean, what would that be like to live in a particular location and then a year later to just be like, okay, well, where is this? And you don't have a phone that you can pull out that gives you a little blue dot that says, oh, okay, we're about 45 miles west of where we started. You, it, you're just there. What would you do first? Well, the Bible tells us what Noah did first. If you look with me at Genesis chapter 8, in verse 20, the Bible says this, then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. What does Noah do first? He worships. Noah worships. He gives thanks to the Lord for bringing them safely through the floodwaters of his judgment. He gives thanks to the Lord by building an altar and offering sacrifices off that, on that altar that are a pleasant aroma to the Lord, the Bible says. And I want to remind you that there are far more things in Genesis left unsaid than are actually said. We come to Genesis with all sorts of questions, and we sometimes expect that Genesis is going to give us all of the information, but it doesn't. And this is yet another example of this. There's no record of 
of altars or what the rules are for sacrifices. This is all information that has been communicated to them, but hasn't been communicated to us in the book of Genesis. What is interesting about this is that there's language that Moses, I believe Moses is the author of the Pentateuch, that's the first five books of the Old Testament, so so uh, I about said Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Uh, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, an anthology that goes together, written likely by Moses, and Moses uses language here in Genesis 9 that he's going to employ once again, but this time in Leviticus, where the rules for the burnt offerings are laid out. And we see this refrain, as these rules for the burnt offerings are laid out, that these offerings are a pleasant aroma to the Lord. That's language here in Genesis 9 that's going to later be picked up in Leviticus chapter 1. But there no doubt would have been questions then in Noah's mind at this point having gone through such a traumatic experience. And I said a couple of weeks ago, and I'll say it again, the story as it's told to us is often we pick up on the idea of a floating zoo. But this is not a story about a floating zoo. This is a story about God's judgment, and it is terrible. Don't think that because Noah and his family have been rescued from the floodwaters of judgment, that they're not traumatized by this. I mean, think about the experience that you have just had for a year and the experience of stepping out into a world that you no longer recognize yet still feels familiar in some ways. And I want you to also remember that if Moses is the author here, as I've said, I think he is, then Moses is writing to a people whose story he is intentionally trying to reshape. I said at the beginning that the sto- our cultures have stories that shape our viewpoint of the world. Moses is writing to a people who have been enslaved for, for four plus centuries, He's writing to a group of people whose value as human beings is simply in what they can produce. They are slaves. These are people who are well-versed in the stories of the Egyptians and the surrounding cultures. There's no way that they wouldn't have had contact with all of these stories and all of these different religious practices and all of these gods and their fickle ways. And so one of the things that Moses is trying to do in writing this, I believe, is to retell their story for them the right way so they understand, have a correct understanding both of who they are as a people and who God truly is. The gods are fickle. Noah is no doubt at this point asking himself a legitimate question Does God take life lightly? Was the taking, was the extinguishing of human breath just a small thing to him? No doubt this might have left Noah and his family wondering when the next shoe might drop. And so this Next and final chapter in Noah's story is incredibly important to us because I believe in telling this last story in this last chapter, it tells us God's perspective on life. 
Though the flood may tempt us to believe that God takes life lightly or that it's a small thing for him to have done what he did, this passage teaches us this truth, which I would like us to consider this morning, that God is absolutely, positively, without a doubt, pro-life. God is pro-life. And what I'd like to do in this section as we walk through this last piece of Noah's life in the aftermath of the flood, I would like us to see five reasons why, in spite of all that has just transpired, God is pro-life. We're going to see these five reasons are God's five intentions that he expresses for humanity that prove to us and to them that he is pro-life. Here's the first reason, number one, because God intends life to be preserved. God intends for life to be preserved. If you're there in Genesis 8, look with me at verse 21. The Bible says this there, and when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Now that's interesting. God is not saying, I fixed it, humanity has course corrected, and so now I will never again curse the ground. God is saying, I will never again curse the ground, even though the intentions of man remain evil. Okay, then he goes on to say, neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. And then if you want to flip over to verse 11, that's repeated where it says, I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. Once again, inhabit Noah's sandals. How would you feel after the great weather passes and you see the first storm clouds gather in the sky? How are you going to feel as you're out working in the field when you first feel those those first droplets of water on the back of your neck? Is this happening all over again? In spite of the fact that mankind was going to continue to be wicked and has continued to be wicked throughout the rest of human history, God is promising grace in the four seasons. You are going to have seed time and harvest. You are going to experience summer and fall and winter and spring. And you are going to experience a succession of seasons again and again and again because I am never going to bring the earth to an end and a cataclysmic ending as such happen. Now, I'll just say, if this was contextualized, if Moses had been writing to us, then he would have said, you will continue to have the seasons of really hot summer and a little bit less hot summer over and over again. Because that's what we get. We got really hot, I'm going to die, and oh, that's not as bad, that's, it's hot. That's what we have. But there's this cycle of seasons that reminds us that moving forward, 
There is not going to be another extinction level event because God now intends for life to be preserved. There's a second reason the Bible tells us, I think, that God is pro-life. And is that God intends for life to proliferate. I told the first service this as well. I got caught in the alliteration trap. It's not cool to alliterate anymore, but when you, when you preach, sometimes you just can't help yourself. So I've got a lot of P words here today. But God intends for life to proliferate. Look at chapter 9 and verse 1. And God blessed Noah and his sons, and he said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Drop down to verse 7. It's repeated again. And you, be fruitful and multiply, increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. Now, this is the responsibility. This is, a, this is a piece of the dominion mandate. I know that I repeat this over and over again, but it's really important. God creates humanity and places them in the earth, and he gives them the responsibility to proliferate life in that earth and to cultivate the earth that they've been given for their good and his glory. That's humanity's responsibility. That's what the dominion mandate is. And what we are seeing here is that Noah is being presented by our author as a sort of second Adam. The flood water, the, the world has been turned to a place of chaos, returned to a place of chaos as once again, once again, the waters close over the land. And now that the waters have receded and land is exposed once again, we see a new man and a new woman and a new family walking out and we see language grabbed from the beginning, brought into this. And so we see Noah as a second Adam with the responsibility once again to have dominion. And this is significant because this happens post-fall. Not the season, but the fall of humanity into sin. The fact that the earth is cursed, okay, the fact that we're going, to, we're going to build and plant and cultivate by the sweat of our brow, that there's going to be pain in childbirth, none of those things remove our responsibility to have dominion over the earth. And so that responsibility and that privilege remains. I said... A few months ago, but I want to remind you again, I believe that the dominion mandate is woven into the very fiber of our beings. God has made each one of you uniquely. There is not a single person on planet Earth like you. That doesn't mean that we all have completely unique contributions But God has given you gifts to cultivate and steward. And he has put you in an earth that can be cultivated and stewarded. And I don't want us, in spite of the fact that the fall has occurred and in spite of the fact that that everything that we do has been tinged or touched with sin, I still don't want us to lose sight of the fact that it is an amazing world that God has placed us in and that you are amazing people that God has placed in it 
because of what God has placed in you. As we get older, we lose the wonder of that. Last night, a piece of it was regained for me. Last night, we were sitting on our patio, and our five-year-old, who can't remember anything at all in the world, remembered very clearly from leaving school on Friday that SpaceX was going to launch a rocket that would be visible from our yards and told us numerous times every day to not forget about the launch of the rocket. We were sitting on our back patio having dinner. It was getting closer to the time when the the rocket was supposed to launch. She's reminding us now, almost like she's sitting in mission control, counting it down, every second that the rocket is coming, and we're telling her, uh, to be honest with you, I didn't think we were going to be able to see this rocket. So I'm saying, that's going to be very cool. We may not be able to see the rocket. We don't know. We don't even know where the rocket's going to be, and it's, it's getting closer to just a few minutes after seven, and we're talking about the rocket, and we look up, and there's the rocket. <laughs> and it's just booking it across the sky, and we could see it. And she is so overcome with the emotions that she feels of that that she immediately bursts into tears. Not because she's afraid, but because she is grasping in her little five-year-old way the vast amazingness of the universe. We lose the ability to wonder. But every once in a while, a child makes you step back and see it again. If someone had told me, hey, SpaceX is launching a rocket, you might be able to see it, I would have said, that's cool, but football's on. (laughs) Have you seen that? But last night, I saw the rocket. And I was reminded of space. And that we figured out how to send stuff into it. And we can attach cameras to the stuff that goes up there. And we can communicate with that stuff. And we can stream it live on YouTube so my five-year-old can watch it and say, I want to be an astronaut because she's so amazed at the world we live in. Yes, this world is a broken place But don't let the brokenness distract you or dull out the wonder that God's put people like me and you into this place and said, go figure stuff out. Find new things, make new things, cultivate it, cultivate yourselves for my glory. There's a third reason that God is unmistakably pro-life in our text. It's this, because God intends for the eating of lifeblood to be prohibited. That's a little bit of a strange one. Look with me at verse 4 of chapter 9. It says, but you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. Now, when I when I talk about the phrase the lifeblood of an organization, you immediately know what I mean when I when when I or an organization speaks about its lifeblood. 
When an organization speaks about its lifeblood, it it's speaking about the animating influence, the thing that gives that organization life. It may be their passion for the products that they make. It may be the, the employees that work for them. It might be their passion for their customer base. It could be all sorts of things, but we still use that phrase, the lifeblood of an organization. The shedding of blood is, is and is going to become important and increasingly important in the life of God's people as we see the sacrificial system developed. I mentioned Leviticus earlier. I'm going to mention Leviticus again because in Leviticus chapter 17, the Bible is going to say, the life of the flesh is in the blood, for it is the blood that makes atonement by that life. What God is developing in his people through the sacrificial system is, is an awareness about the preciousness of life and the fact that life must be sacrificed because sin is so horrible and so deadly and such an affront to its creator. And all of it is a setup for the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And one of the things that Peter says to, to us as Christians is he says, hey, you have not been redeemed by worthless things like silver or gold. You haven't been bought out of the slavery from sin from, from something as small and insignificant as currency, but by the what? The precious blood of Christ the sacrifice that he makes for us on the cross. And as a way, uh, we can, there's different viewpoints about whether this command is still in effect for God's people now. We don't need to wade into that debate at this point. The point is that for Noah and later enshrined in the Old Testament law, they are to refrain from eating blood because God is teaching his people something about the importance of the shedding of blood is ultimately going to be realized in the shedding of the blood of his own son. There's a fourth reason that God is unmistakably pro-life. And it's this, God intends for the taking of life to be punished. God intends for the taking of life to be punished. Look with me at verse 5 of chapter 9, if you will. It says, and for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast, I will require it. And from man, from his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. What God wants Noah and his family to understand is that that he regards human life, and thus they ought to regard human life, with such value that the unjustified taking of a human life requires the reckoning of one's own life. And God's so serious about this that he actually extends it, interestingly, to animals as well. <laughs> Either an animal or a person takes a life, that person must have their own life taken. Now, once again, I don't want to wade into the capital punishment discussion right there and the, right now and the different sides of that discussion because it's, it's a complicated discussion beyond the pale of what we want to talk about this morning. 
What I do want to say is we see capital punishment expressed very clearly here to Noah and his family, and we see the basis for it given. Why does God regard the taking of human life to be such a heinous thing? Because when you take unjustifiably the life of another human being, it is not just a crime against that person, it is a crime against the very image of God. God takes it personally. Because that is the life of an image bearer. That is a person that God put on planet Earth to represent him and reflect him. And we do not have the right to unjustifiably take life. It's an affront to God himself. Okay. Fifth. There's a fifth reason God in there's a fifth reason that God in this passage in my view is clearly pro-life. And it's this, God intends to bless life by keeping his promises. God intends to bless life by keeping his promises. Let me unpack that a little bit for you. We're going to see in the verses that we're going to read that Noah's story ends on a little bit of a bizarre note that, make, that kind of paints him in a bad light. So let's read those verses together, beginning in verse 20 of chapter 9. The Bible says, Noah began to be a man of the soil, and he planted a vineyard. He drank of the wine and became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. Then Shem and Japheth took a garment laid it on both their shoulders and walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned backward and they did not see their father's nakedness. When Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his youngest son had done to him, he said, cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants shall he be to his brothers. He also said, blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be a servant. May God enlarge Japheth and let him dwell in the tents of Shem and let Canaan be his servant. Okay, so what in the world is going on here? Because that's a little bit of a weird passage of scripture. Well, I'm not sure. I'm not sure exactly what's going on here. There have been reams and reams of things written about what could have happened here. The truth of the matter is, there's not much we know, and refer to my earlier point, Genesis actually leaves far more unsaid than it leaves said. So what can we say for certain based on what the text tells us? Here are the things that we know for certain. Noah has a little bit too much to drink, and then he does something that sometimes happens when people have a little too much to drink. We know that, and that's the extent of it. We know that Ham discovers this and does something dishonoring to his father. 
What it is, in what respect he dishonors him, the Bible does not say. And then we know for certain that his brothers, Shem and Japheth, have an opposite response as their brother Ham, whereas he dishonors his father when his father has made a fool of himself, they choose to honor their father in spite of the fact that he has made a fool of himself. And we know that when Noah sobers up, somehow he is aware of what has happened and pronounces a curse on Canaan and a blessing on Shem. Everything else beyond that is speculation. And there's good reason. I think, the, I think we ought to read our Bibles with a healthy imagination, but we need to know where our imagination starts and the text ends. So read it with that skill. All right, that's what we know. So now we're asking the question, well, why is there a curse? Why is the curse on Canaan? Because twice... He speaks the curse on Canaan, but the Bible tells us that it's Ham who dishonors his father in some respect. Here's a little bit of imaginative speculation on my part. I'm telling you where the text ends and where the speculation begins. It's very possible that Canaan was involved in this in some respect. The Bible doesn't tell us that Canaan was involved, but it's very possible that he had some role to play along with his father, either during or after the incident. That's one thing. The second thing is that we need to remember that this this is written many, many, many years after it's happening. And one of the things that Moses, the author, is trying to do is connect several threads from Israel's current situation all the way back to the beginning. We're going to get introduced in chapter 12 to Abram. And one of the things that the text goes out of its way to tell us about is that when Abram goes to the land that God tells him, the Canaanites dwell there, the Canaanites dwell there, the Canaanites dwell there. And what Moses is doing is trying to tie all these threads together to give the origin story of why these political problems have played out the way they have played out. Because that's, that's, something that, that's something that Moses is doing. I don't believe that Moses curses Canaan. Canaan, poor Canaan, just wants to go the right direction and do the right thing, but he's cursed, and so all he can do is bad things, and that leads him to have the history that he leads. One of the patterns that we see in the Old Testament over and over again is that families have generational sins that get perpetuated. That happens over and over again, and we see that it's incredibly difficult I'm not talking about generational curses where you're stuck and there's nothing you can do, but it's, incredible, it's incredibly difficult to break the patterns that you receive. Ham clearly, and there's more to the story than this. this is, Ham is probably not an upstanding citizen who's honoring his father all the time and he messes up once and, and his, his father curses him. We have probably established known character being perpetuated through the sons, so much so that, Mo- that uh, Noah speaks a curse against his son Canaan, who's likely following in the footsteps of his father already. Some of that is imaginative speculation. 
But I think this is the, the way we ought to approach texts like this. And we know, because Moses is trying to draw threads for us here, we know that this curse comes true. We know that the, the, the Canaanites settle in the land of Canaan. We know that they are a continual thorn in the side of God's people, Israel, and that they are subjected to God's people when God gives the land to Abram and his posterity forever. Noah also speaks a word of blessing on Shem. Before I get to that word of blessing, I want you to take an imaginary controller and hit pause on what we're talking about because I want to make a brief aside about something that I think is still important. This passage that uh, we are looking at right now has been used in the past to justify American slavery. You may have heard the phrase, the curse of Ham. Has anyone heard that before? Okay, a few people have, have heard that. I thank God that less and less people are familiar with this. But I'm 42 years old, so to some of you I'm old, but to others of you I'm not that old. And I'm here in the year 2022 of our Lord, and in my lifetime, I've heard about the curse of Ham. The reasoning for the curse of Ham went like this. The Hebrew word ham has its roots in the, in the word for dark, number one. Ham, uh, uh, ham has four sons, two of whom settle in North Africa. He's got a son named Egypt, and he's got a son named Cush. Egypt is obvious, but Cush is traditionally associated with countries in Northern Africa in the Bible. So dark, Northern Africa, he'll be the servants. Slavery's good. This text was used then to justify the enslavement of people of color. In fact, Patrick Mell, the four, uh, who's the fourth president of the Southern Baptist Convention, said this, from Ham were descended the nations that occupied the land of Canaan, and those that now constitute the African or Negro race. Their inheritance, according to prophecy, has been and will continue to be slavery. And so long as we have the Bible, we expect to maintain it. This is a practice in search of a biblical justification. But the curse of Ham is misnamed from the very beginning because it's actually a curse on Canaan. The background of that word Ham is not the word dark, and it's Egypt and Cush, not Canaan, who are settlers in North Africa. So, so if, if that even began to have a, a shred of reality in it, there is absolutely no basis for the curse of Ham being a justification for the enslavement of dark-skinned people. Using this passage to justify a curse on a certain group of people is a lie from the pit of hell used to justify the very thing the Bible condemns. Okay. American slavery, the form that it was done, is condemned 
of the Bible. I want to be clear about that. The danger here and the lesson for us is that, that we can use the Bible ourselves. You know, we can look back and think, oh man, as unenlightened people. But we can use the Bible in the very same way to justify what it explicitly condemns. Unpause. But that's important. Let me get back to the word of blessing that, God, or that Noah speaks over Shem. Noah speaks a, a specific word of blessing to his son, Shem, and I want us to see how important this is. Because the Bible is telling us something here that goes back all the way to chapter 3 and a promise that was made in chapter 3. Back in chapter 3, amidst the curses that come upon the earth because of sin, there's that word of promise that's given to us. Remember, there's, there's a seed of the woman, a descendant of the woman who is coming, who is going to put his heel on the head of the serpent. And I've told you this in numerous, uh, numerous messages as we've been going throughout Genesis, but one of the reasons that Genesis has so many genealogies, and if you've ever been reading through it, you're like, okay, I get it, genealogies, but there's a purpose in those genealogies. What the author is doing is tracing for us the seed, the line, the descendant of promise. There is a continual warfare between the seed or the descendants of the serpent and the seed and the descendants of the woman. And the Bible is telling us that this line is going to go through Shem. We're going to see Shem's genealogy uh, uh, expanded for us later on in Genesis. We're going to see that, that, a- that Abram comes through that. And then the New Testament is going to pick this up because in the genealogies that trace the lineage of Jesus, who shows up in those genealogies? Shem. It's when, when we see Noah bless Shem, what we are ultimately seeing above that is God blessing his people by keeping his promises that he made from the very beginning. Okay. For all those five reasons, I believe that God is most certainly pro-life. So that means we have just one last thing to deal with in our text that you're probably like, aren't you forgetting something? So there's a rainbow in there. There's a rainbow. Look with me at verse 12 of chapter 9. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the cloud and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant. Remember what we talked about uh, just a couple of weeks ago? God remembered Noah. And God keeps remembering his covenant throughout the rest of the Old Testament and into the New. And here, God is saying, when I bring uh, the clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And the waters shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it. 
Notice a couple of times here, it's not just that we look at the bow. God's looking at the bow. God doesn't need to be reminded. We need to be reminded. But God is saying, hey, I see you. I have not forgotten my promises. When the bow is in the clouds, verse 16, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. God makes a covenant with Noah, and then he gives Noah a sign of that covenant, which is his bow in the clouds. Now, when I was a kid, for some reason, and I don't know if just nobody, if I just, I missed a lot of things. Uh, for some reason, the, the bow thing never made sense to me because I was thinking of like a bow on a present or the bow that you tie when you tie your shoes. And so I was, I was always thinking like, I just am not, I guess, part of a bow. It's like part of a bow up there. And it, for some reason, when I was a kid, it never occurred to me that we are not talking about that kind of bow. We are talking about a weapon of war. And when, when the Bible tells us that God hangs his bow in the clouds, the Bible is telling us that the sword has gone in its sheath, the gun has gone in the holster, the bow is hung up in the clouds, and that he is no longer at war with us. And it takes all the colors of the rainbow to tell us that story. For us to be reminded again and again through that covenant sign that God never forgets his promises to his people. I love the way the Jesus Storybook Bible puts it. Kids, reading from a Bible storybook. You see the cover of this book? If your parents have not bought this book for you, you tell them, I told you it was okay to buy it on Amazon today. <laughs> the Jesus Storybook Bible says this beautifully, I think. Uh, Sally Lloyd-Jones, in writing this, is, is referring to the fact that, that uh, Noah thanks God for rescuing them. So she, she tells us the first things that, that, that Noah does. But then she says, the first thing God did was make another promise. I won't ever destroy the world again. And like a warrior who puts away his bow and arrow at the end of a great battle, God said, see, I have hung up my bow in the clouds. And there in the clouds, just where the storm meets the sun, was a beautiful bow made of light. It was a new beginning in God's world. It wasn't long before everything went wrong again, but God wasn't surprised. He knew this would happen. That's why before the beginning of time, he had another plan, a better plan. A plan not to destroy the world, but to rescue it. A plan to one day send his own son, the rescuer. God's strong anger against hate and sadness and death would come down once more, but not on his people or his world. No, God's war bow was not pointing down at his people. 
It was pointing up into the heart of heaven. We are going to share the Lord's Supper together today. And there is, the, the Lord's Supper is connected to a covenant that, that God has made with us in Christ, the new covenant. And the Lord's Supper, like the rainbow, is a sign of the new covenant. You are remembering that the body of our Savior was broken. And you are remembering that his precious blood was shed. And every time you put that bread in your mouth and you raise that cup to your lips, you are remembering, as when you see the rainbow, that God is not at war with you. The judgment and the wrath that you have earned from your sin you will never experience because it has been poured out in the precious blood of Christ. 